The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Why don't we grab our Bibles and go with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. So we continue verse by verse. We find ourselves here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this evening. How many of you, by show of hands, are following the Trump impeachment Senate trials the last couple days? Anybody? Wow, that's quite a few of you guys following that stuff. Um, Is it exciting? (laughs) Oh, man, it just, you know, if you're a newsie, uh, you tend to just kind of hear the same things over and over from both sides, you know, like the same arguments, the same sort of, it's like um, this drudgery of just going through uh, information and, and, uh, and different, different views on stuff. And man, the, the controversy swirls, you know, and, um, and uh, it, it's really kind of fascinating. Um, this is very unique. It's, it's a very unique time in our nation's history. I mean, because we've never really had such a one-sided impeachment and, um, and also, you know, with the prospect of having an, an impeached president run for office in the next term and maybe even having the potential to win uh, an impeached president that wins the next election. I'm not. Oh, so we got our Trump fans here. That's yeah. Half of I'm saying this. Half of you are Trump fans. Half of you are not. Just, I'm just telling you that I've, I've learned that about our congregation. It's kind of a 50 50 thing, actually. Um, I know some of you are shocked. Um, but that means you probably don't know a lot. Um, but, um, uh, but no, it really is amazing, the divide in our country and in our churches. You know, evangelicals don't even agree. You know, and it's, it's a funny thing how, um, how this division and this argumentation, well, it, it's kind of caused me to sort of remember what we're doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes because we just keep hearing Solomon talk about the same themes and he's sort of just begrudgingly talking about, oh, everything's, you know, nothing's good under the sun, and it's all, you know, a waste of time, and life is empty. Empty, empty, meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. He's, he's kind of got this thing. And then what we're going to see tonight is where we start seeing him contradict himself in his own book. Like, he's going to say stuff on one day and say one thing and say a totally another thing on another in his chapters of Ecclesiastes. And you're like, which one is it? Should we be full of laughter and mirth, or should we not be full of laughter and mirth? And you can prove both points in Ecclesiastes because, well, it seems that Solomon's a little schizophrenic. He's got like two different sides to him. And sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no. But it's, remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon disconnected from God. And uh, our theme of the book, discontent, disconnected from God, means discontentment with life. And that's the case for Solomon. He's discontented, unhappy, if he thinks wrongly that life is meaningless. Um, and so you have to be careful when your friends read Ecclesiastes. You have to say, well, that's a book where, where you know, Solomon's writing about life apart from God. Um, and, and that's why he's writing these things. So we can learn about the person who's disconnected from God as we read Ecclesiastes. And, um, and then we'll, we'll kind of see the answer to the matter uh, toward the end of the book uh, as we get through this. So it, it is somewhat work going through Ecclesiastes, a little bit depressing. But we also have lamentations coming too. So uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better uh, as we go through the Bible here. But Solomon here picks up in chapter 8, here in verse 1, it says, Who is as the wise man? 
and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Interesting, Solomon, who we know was given wisdom by God, although much of his life he didn't really use that wisdom that he he was given. Um, How can a person so wise be so stupid? Um, It's easy. There's a lot of wise people that are stupid. It's because they're not using the wisdom they've been given. How many times have you done something? You know, oh man, this is against my better judgment, but here it goes. And then you think, oh yeah, that was, that was stupid. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. Um, but that's Solomon. And he spends a lot of his years going contrary to what he knew to be true and right. And then, then when you disconnect from God, man, you can't trust anything that you're thinking. Your mind can go all kinds of directions. But he's sort of remembering the wise man, and he, and he makes a statement here that I find intriguing. He's talking about the countenance of a wise man, a person who's truly wise. He says, you know, who is as the wise man who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? The man's wisdom makes his face to shine. That's a, an idiom of the Bible. Remember um, there in Numbers 6 where it talks about the Lord, how we're to greet one another. And one of the greetings we say, the Lord bless thee, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. And to have a shiny countenance means that you have a favorable countenance, uh, favorable toward what you're looking upon. Um, it's sort of like a mother would look at her sweet little baby child, and she would look upon that child with a good countenance because she's looking upon that child with favor. And that's the idea here. And, and he's saying the wise man, his face shines, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Um, the idea, um, the boldness or the strength. He, he'll walk with sort of a stronger face. Uh, do you know people that have strong faces? Uh, they say things with real confidence and, and maybe wisdom is part of that. Um, so he's just making an observation of the, the man that's walking around who's wise and strong and his face shows it. I believe the face, according to the Bible, can tell a lot about people. Have you ever just been, you know, walking around in some store or some place, you know, where you see a person and you think, you know what, I bet that person's a Christian. Have you ever thought that? Where you just thought, I bet that person's a believer in Jesus. I, I remember when I was a little kid, I remember when I first kind of recognized this, as my mom took us into, I think it was Kenny's shoe, shoe store. Remember Kenny's shoes? Are they still around? Probably not. But we'd go in and get our yearly new pair of shoes, you know. And so we went into Kenny's shoes and we walked in and this, this young woman came up and walked up and said, how can I help you? And my mom, you know, she just said, you're a believer in Jesus, aren't you? And she, that was the first thing my mom said to this girl. And the girl just smiled and said, how'd you know? And my mom said, your countenance tells it. And the woman was touched. And, and, uh, and I remember, um, you know, seeing that. And then, by the way, like, they got to talking and she, then she came to our church and then she plugged in and, and now we're old friends, the, the lady from the shoe store. Uh, it's, it's kind of a great story, actually. But, but um, I've, I've seen that on people's faces. You can almost say, wow, that person believes in Jesus because their face gives it away, uh, their countenance. Um, but that's the idea. What does your countenance say? You know, where have you been? What have you been hanging out with? Remember the countenance of Moses when he went up on the mountain to hang out with God and he came down from the mountain and what was the deal with his face? He was glowing. Man, his face shined and the people were like, ah, Moses, you're too bright. So he put a bag over his head. Um, and now in the Old Testament, it leaves us hanging. hanging. It says, you know, he put a bag over his head um, to, you know, not be offensive to all the people around so they wouldn't have to cover their eyes. Does anybody remember what the New Testament tells us, the additional information? 
His glow was diminishing, and he didn't want the people to see that he's starting to fade a little bit. Oh, Moses' glow is not quite as bright as it was yesterday. (laughs) So he actually put the bag on to to cover the diminishing glow. That's a funny story. But, um, man, spending time with the Lord, Moses would glow. And I think that's true of you and me. As we spend time with the Lord, it starts to change your countenance. Well, that's what's going on here in verse 1, a changed countenance from the wise person. He says in verse 2, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. He's basically saying, um, as a king, you should submit to the king. And uh, boy, we could talk about that, you know, and as far as like if you're under an evil king, you know, what do you do? And really, when Jesus was asked questions sort of like this, he, he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And Caesar was no, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers, if you know what I mean. Um, and Caesar Nero, ultimately, with, with Paul the Apostle, um, you know, Paul would say, pray for those who are kings and rulers and authority over us. And uh, that's one of the things we can kind of take away from Solomon, really, here, that um, the king's word goes. But we're not a monarchy. Um, you know, we're a republic and, and all that stuff. And, and so our, but the idea is those in authority, and, and we, we are to pray for those. And that's one of the things I've noticed in this current political climate of people either loving Trump or hating Trump, either way. Um, As Christians, our job is to pray. That's our number one job. Paul says, I would that you first of all make prayers and supplication for kings and rulers and authority over you. Um, And and that's what we should be given to, prayer. I've noticed that we are given to conversation or complaining or talking about how amazing the economy is right now or whatever, you know, we want to talk about, but are we praying as Christians? That's one of the things we're called to do. But we're also called, interestingly enough, to obey the laws of the land. Um, and that's here what Solomon's saying, man, you know, if, if you don't be hasty to go do stuff out of the sight of the king, doing evil stuff, you know, don't do an evil thing, because um, he can do whatever he wants with you, especially in Bible days, off with your head, you know, kind of thing, if you were sinning. But the Bible teaches us that we are to submit to those in authority. It's been a theme, actually, kind of an unexpected theme coming out of Ecclesiastes. And I've been talking about this, but listen to Romans 13.1. It says in Romans, Paul talking here to the Roman church, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive unto themselves damnation. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil works. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God for, uh, to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid. For he that beareth not the sword in vain, uh, pardon me, um, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So, you know, Paul's saying, abide by the law. And be afraid if you're breaking the law, because the guy who carries the sword, 
the police officer or the soldier or whatever, the Roman soldier. They're a minister of God. That's what Paul says. So it's an interesting New Testament truth sort of supporting um, what the, even throughout the Bible, including Ecclesiastes, Psalm is just do what the king tells you to do. Now, is there ever an occasion where we shouldn't do that? Well, yes. And that's where we don't do things that are contrary to God's word. If somebody wants you to go out and, you know, murder or somebody, you know, that's why some of these debates, even in the Supreme Court right now about abortion is such a big deal. You know, should employers have to give birth control in types of birth control that, you know, um, so many of us would disagree with and say it's, it's actually not right? And the, um, and, and the government's debating even now in the Supreme Court and dealing with these issues about, you know, should we force people to do stuff that goes against their biblical or religious views? And that, that's being debated right now. But it is interesting. There is a point where a line can be crossed where I think, um, you know, you, you don't abide by the laws of the land. You know, and there's examples of that in the Bible too. Um, you know, we could talk about Rahab in Jericho and how she rebelled against her leadership because they were going to go slaughter the Jews. And uh, they wanted to kill Jews. And the Jews were saying, nope, we're coming into Jericho. And there was going to be a big battle. But Rahab chose to support the Jewish cause, and God blessed her for it. And she rebelled against her own government. Um, and there's, there's I- I- issues like that we could talk about in the Bible. Um, but the point is, um, generally speaking, we're supposed to just abide by the laws of the land. And that's something that, that um, some people don't really acknowledge, but the Bible does teach that. Well, that's what he's saying. You know, um, uh, Solomon's saying, man, the king, where the king is, there's power. He's going to, you know, deal with things that are evil. That's just the, the bottom line. Verse 6, because to every purpose there is time and judgment Therefore, the misery of man is great upon him, for he knoweth not that which shall be. For who can tell him when it shall be? Solomon's saying, we don't know anything. We, you know, man can't tell when things are going to happen or what's going to happen. You know, basically, everything's just a big mi- mystery. And the things we don't know causes, you know, fear and trouble is the idea. And the, the truth is, this is Solomon, again, apart from God. Do we know the future? To some degree, we sure do. We know that all things are going to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, Love God. You know, we know that. Do we know that some people are going to go to heaven and some people, yep. Some people are going to go to hell. Some people are going to heaven. Do we know that the Lord's going to return? Yep. Do we know that he's going to set all the wrongs right? Like there's a ton of things we know about the future. God knows the beginning from the end, the Bible says. And um, that's one of those doctrines, by the way, that's being taught by people right now that you should uh, watch out for open theology that says uh, God doesn't know the future, um, and it's up to you to write the new future. Uh, That's wacko. I hope you don't believe that because it goes against what the Bible teaches. The Lord knows all things. He's omniscient, and he definitely knows the future. So the point is Solomon's frustrated because he, he says, well, we can't really know. And, and, and because of that, life's a bummer. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. There's a story of an interesting map that, that's actually on display in the British Museum in London. Um, it's an old mariner's chart drawn in 1525. So it's a pretty old map. But it basically was outlining the North American, um, you know, uh, east coast coastline of the east coast of North America. 
Um, but, you know, being that early, you know, not long after, you know, uh, Christopher Columbus, I mean, in 1492, Chris, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but this map was from 1525, not that far after Columbus. So the cartographer, the map maker, um, made some intriguing notations on the areas of the map that represented regions that were not yet explored. Um, he wrote on those blank coastline sections, here be giants. Um, and then another blank space, here be fiery scorpions. And then another blank space on the map, here be, you know, dragons. You know, and eventually the map came into possession of Sir John Franklin, the British explorer in the early 1800s. And he took the, the map and scratched out the fearful inscriptions and he wrote these words across the map, here is God. <laughs> interesting. Uh, and that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Here be fiery serpents and the unknown. Some people are given to just think of the negative. Man, we don't know what the future is, so it's all scary and dragons and giants and scorpions. But the, the person of faith says, nope, God is there. He knows what's going on and we rest in that. Solomon is a little bit on the here be dragons, here be scorpions, here be giants. He's kind of in that mode, disconnected from God. He, he, he's worried about the unknown and the things that he can't tell. As believers, we can put our trust and our confidence in the Lord. And so here we see him kind of complaining about that, really, in verses 6 and 7. Verse 8, there is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Now, you've got to understand, he's talking about not the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit of man, you know, alive or dead. He's saying you have no power whether to stay alive um, unless you're the Bee Gees. Sorry. <laughs> Had to go the other way since you guys were talking about Rush earlier. Um, staying alive, you, there's no way to, to, to make sure of that. He, that's what he's saying here. There's no man that hath power over the Spirit, verse 8, to retain the Spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge or casting off, um, is the word there, in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. You know, basically you can't control when you die or, um, you know, the results of wickedness. Um, now, it's interesting because one scripture that I find intriguing is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where it says, um, And it, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this is judgment. Um, the Bible says that it's appointed once for a man to die. Um, there's an appointment. God knows when that is. Um, the question is, when is your appointment with death? Solomon's freaked out. He said, nobody can know when they're going to die. You can't add a day to your life. You can't, you know, save your life. You can't keep your spirit within yourself. He's like, uh, that's just totally out of your control. And he's whining about it because he's disconnected from God. But like we were talking about a few weeks ago, if you're a Christian, a believer in God, you just trust that the Lord knows your day, your, when you're going to go and be with him. And man, it's so much more freeing to live with that trust, just knowing the Lord knows the length of my days, and I'm just going to trust him for it. Well, verse 9, all this have I seen and applied by heart unto every work that is done under the sun. There's a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. And so I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This is also vanity or emptiness. Verse 11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, 
Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Solomon's making an observation. He's like, man, you know, you never know when when the Lord's going to, you know, finish off someone who's doing wickedly. Um, You know, he says, I saw, you know, in verse 10, so I saw the wicked buried, you know, they've come and gone and people have forgotten them in the city. But it seems because it seems like the Lord is delaying in his judgment against the wicked. Men just keep doing more wickedly. Um, I wonder if this is true as much even today. I think it is. We mistake God's patience and compassion with indifference. But, you know, they've said, you know, for years, the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they will grind thoroughly. There's coming a time where the Lord is going to judge. He's, he's patient. He's not quick to judge, but he is patient. You know, one of the great illustrations of that, I think, is in the land of Canaan. A lot of people that nominally know their Bibles, they say, well, why do the Jews go in and kill all the Canaanites? You know, the Malachites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the flashlights, and all those guys. Like, why does God have them go in there and just wipe them all out? Ethnic cleanse, they, you know, they say, some of the college professors. But there's, there's actually a bigger story to that. The Canaanites were an exceedingly wicked people, and they were doing wickedly, sacrificing babies on altars and having all kinds of you know, um, you know, priests and priestesses that would work in these high places and temples where they would practice all kind of sexually perverted sort of things and they're their worshiping of Ashtoreth and Baal. And, and they became this really sick, diseased, sinful, messed up people. And, and God was going to judge them. But what's amazing, people forget, he gave them more than 400 years to repent of that sin. In fact, let me read to you from Genesis when the Lord was promising, you know, to Abraham the the land that he would give to Abraham. The Jews would get the land of Israel. In Genesis 15, 13, the Lord said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. Also that nation whom they shall serve, I will judge and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. He's saying those strangers in that land, you're going to come in and be strangers, and they would be for, for 400 years. But um, what's interesting about that is after Abraham, eventually Isaac and Jacob, the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and eventually along would come David, who would subdue the Canaanites uh, during his reign and they would take over that land. But it took more than 400 years. Um, Why did it take 400 years? Was God lazy or slack? No, God is patient. And he gave those, um, all the Canaanites, 400 plus years to repent of their evil things. And they didn't, and they got worse. And eventually the Lord poured out his wrath upon them and judged those nations. By the way, we talk about that locally in the Canaanite land, but do you know there's a global judgment coming? Um, is the bowl filled up yet? Do you remember those kid water parks? And they always have the, the bucket that's being filled up. And as the bucket, you know, with a little waterfall somewhere, and the water goes in and the bucket's filling. But when the bucket gets to a certain level, then it turns over and dumps out. Have you guys seen that one? I always picture that when I think of the bowls of wrath. Bowls of wrath? Yep, there's these buckets, bowls of wrath. Listen to uh, Revelation 15.1. 
Um, there, the, John the Apostle receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ about the last days and all that. He says, And I saw another sign in heaven, and great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Um, and then, you know, it goes on and talks about these bowls of wrath that have been filled up. And eventually the Lord's going to pour out each bowl, um, which is part of his judgment upon the earth. That bowl of wrath is filling up. Don't mistake it that God's just like, yeah, the world's whatever. I'm just not going to engage myself with the world and its sin. Nope. The Lord says there's coming a time where he will pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, just like he did the Canaanites, only this time it'll be more of a global pouring out of wrath. Question, does he pour out his wrath upon his own children? No, why? The answer is always the same. Jesus! The wrath that you and I deserve, anyone who believes in Jesus and accepts the work, that wrath that was meant for you and for me was poured out on Jesus. And he took the wrath for us substitutionarily so that we would have salvation through Jesus. So we don't, we're not appointed into wrath. We did a, several Sundays ago, we talked about, uh, does the Lord, Lord destroy the righteous with the wicked? The answer is no. And that's why we can comfort one another with these words. First Thessalonians 4 and 5 tells us that. Well, um, back to Ecclesiastes. That's the idea here is, um, you know, the world gets more and more wicked, misunderstanding that God is not lazy or slack concerning his judgment that's coming, but he's patient, long-suffering, like Peter tells us. That fits with what uh, Solomon's saying. Now, by the way, for you, uh, sentence structure, you know, you guys that love literature and word structure and stuff, um, verses 12 through 14 is one really long Hebrew sentence. It's, it's one of the longest sentences in the Bible, uh, right there in verses 12 through 14. So take a big deep breath and let's read it. Here we go. One huge sentence, kind of a run-on sentence, but it's, it's Solomon, verse 12. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him, but it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there, is, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of righteous. I said that this is also vanity. He's basically saying here in so many words in a huge long sentence. Now, you know the uh, English translations, we divide this up into many sentences. So even though there's periods there, remember, um, uh, you can't really see the same punctuation in a translation. But um, one long sentence basically saying, you know, why do bad things happen to good people and why does good things happen to bad people? And he says, that doesn't make sense to me, Solomon's saying. And it's interesting because that's the same question people ask today. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I always like to remind us that Solomon's, he's missing a key element in his logic. He's assuming that there are good people on the earth. But that's not a good assumption. Uh, that's the problem. When people ask that, you have to be careful because you don't want to sound harsh or brutal. But when people say, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, there are no good people. We're all sinners. and We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one person, the Bible says. 
And, and the truth is, you know, um, when Adam and Eve sinned, because of that, bad things started happening. Good things were happening before man brought sin into the world, but because of the sin of man, the world, the Bible says, became in a sort of a fallen state. That's where disease and mutation and all the trouble and, and thorns and thistles and pain and suffering and death, all that stuff was introduced when humanity brought sin into the world. And, and you and I are contributors to that sin, and all have sinned. So there's no one righteous. So when we say, why does that bad thing happen to the good people? We have to remember, according to the Bible, there are no good people. Now, that's the bad news. The good news, God is good, and he is gracious, and he's kind. And even though bad things do happen to us sometimes, um, ultimately it's going to work together for good for those who believe, who follow after the Lord. Um, again, Solomon, being apart from God, senses that he's not going to get that good work out. And he's saying it's all, you know, part of this vanity. It's also vanity that good happens to bad, bad happens to good. Verse 15. Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God giveth him under the sun." He's basically concluding, because everybody's going to die, bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, you never know when you're going to die, and all this is a vanity, so you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, so let's laugh and, you know, um, and drink and eat, and just call it a day. And that's going to be kind of his theme here in the next couple chapters. But do you remember, he actually said the opposite thing. This is, this is where Solomon sort of contradicts himself in his condition of being separated from God. One of the things you might notice here in the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's instability mentally. One minute he's thinking one way, the next minute he's thinking the other. No other biblical author really does it like Solomon. He's a little bit of a lost soul, not knowing where he's going. So this one says, well, I commended, then I commended mirth, because nobody, there's nothing better to do under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. But if you recall in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Let's look at what he said in verse 1 and 2. He says, I said in my heart, go now, I will prove thee with mirth and enjoy pleasure. Behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of mirth. What doeth it? Do you remember when he said all that? He's like, well, even laughter is a waste of time. It's vanity. But now he's going back around full circle saying, well, if, if, if we're all going to die and don't know when you're going to die, might as well laugh it up and eat, eat some good food. And that's Solomon's conclusion here, in, at least in verse, you know, uh, in chapter 8, uh, right here in verse 15. Uh, by the way, on this, this whole thing of, you know, the wrong statement of eating and drinking and being married, we know that's wrong, by the way, because of Luke chapter 12. Um, do you remember the story, the parable that Jesus spoke there? Let me read to you Luke 12, 16. And Jesus spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods and laid up many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to the man, Thou fool, this night is thy soul, pardon me, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. 
Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Interesting phrase at the end of that little parable. What does it mean to be rich toward God? You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. Are you investing in heaven in eternity? Or are you just living for the here and now? The fool says, oh, I've got big barns. Why don't we build bigger barns and have more stuff? And so he does that. And then he says, don't you understand? You're going to kick the bucket. And you're going to leave your, all your stuff to someone. And you're not rich toward God. You've been investing in this life, this earth. Eat, drink, and be merry, he says. So Jesus uses the same thing to speak of what the fool is in Luke 12. Um, Solomon saying, yeah, that's what I want to do. Eat, drink, and be married. And, that, and the point is, that's foolish behavior, according to Jesus and his parable. Well, that's something we should be careful of. Are you one who's storing up your treasures on this earth and thinking it's all going to be great? And who knows what, maybe you have an appointment with the Lord sooner than later. Uh, store up your treasures in heaven. That's what it says. Well, verse 16, when I applied mine heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes, then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. Isn't it interesting that he's saying, man, you, you can't find what you're looking for. Question, did Solomon try to find what he was looking for? In every single discipline, hobby, study, Solomon just tried everything. And remember, we studied this. He wrote songs, and he was a scientist. He was an entomologist, studied bugs. He was a biologist, was into studying human life. And now he's saying, man, looking at all of creation, you try to study and figure out how God did it, but you will not find it. And he's basically saying, good luck. It's, it, you can't, all, everything that's under the sun that God has done, it escapes us. We can't figure it out. He's giving up on his science and his studies and all that stuff. And he finds it empty. And by the way, I think we see scientists who keep pressing forward, which, you know, I'm a big fan of science. And I love that we're, we're looking and, and learning and trying to figure out how things work. That's the way it should be. But here's the flaw. If we're looking to that to find the meaning of life, that's where I think science is going to fail everyone. We don't find the meaning of life in science. That's what, that's what the world tries to do. But um, we'll find the, the ultimate creator of all things in a, a relationship and a knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. And then science becomes amazing when you look at it through that lens of faith. Um, and by the way, the world sort of has this narrative that you and I should be kind of maybe gently pushing back. They make this argument that Christians don't believe in science. But I challenge them on that. Find out which of the greatest scientists in the world's history were believers in Jesus Christ? The answer, most of them. Most of the greatest scientists that ever walked this earth were believers and followers in Jesus Christ. Discover Magazine, you know, rated Isaac Newton, the greatest scientist that ever lived. And um, I love that because he was also a reader of the Bible and a believer in God. Isaac Newton got some of his theories from things that were stated in the scriptures. 
Um, and meanwhile, the secularists like Voltaire, a contemporary of, of uh, Isaac Newton, was ridiculing Isaac Newton for his stupidity. Um, and Voltaire died being wrong. Isaac Newton died being really one of the truly great scientists and thinkers. Um, that's an interesting thing to me. Check that out. You can look it up. Look at how many of those great thinkers and scientists of history were believers in God, followers of Jesus. Well, um, poor Solomon gives up on all that in chapter uh, 8. Well, chapter 9, he continues. For all this, I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. I think the newer translations put kind of more like, you know, when you uh, are righteous and you stand before God, nobody knows if God's going to be mad at you or glad at you. Um, By the way, there is a faith and a religion that believes that about God, and it's not Christianity. You see, those that are believers and righteous, declared righteous by Jesus Christ, when we go to see the Lord, the Lord is going to show us his kindness and his affection, his love. That's what the Bible says. So Solomon's wrong on this one. Question, what God out there in some false religions, what's the biggest God that nobody really knows what mood he's going to be in? Anybody? Allah. Allah of Islam. That's the problem. He's capricious and nobody really knows. Hopefully he's in a good mood when you have to face Allah because you might get in trouble. You might be in good shape. We just don't know. It cannot be known. Uh, I'm so glad that we can know our God and we can know that he's loving and gracious, full of compassion and mercy Uh, I love that about our God. Well, that's the problem. Uh, Solomon's kind of thinking that Jehovah is like Allah. They're nothing alike. Um, And those that on CNN, Wolf Blitzer, and Discover Channel, and History Channel that tries to tell you, Allah, Jehovah, really are just the same God, and they're just people groups worshiping the same. That's just, they just don't know anything about what they're talking about. Um, And I could go off on that, but I won't. I have. But I won't tonight. Verse 2. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that uh, sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. (laughs) As in the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness in their heart while they live, and after um, that they go to the dead. He's basically saying, you know, we all share a common destiny. We're all going to die, whether you're good, bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter. You're just going to die. That's his theme. That's what he thinks. Um, Everybody's just going to go the way of the dead. And he goes on, verse 4, For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. (laughs) For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. 
Now, this brings about an interesting debate and topic. Some of the cults actually use this verse. And again, is it a good thing to use the book of Ecclesiastes to just take a single verse and form your doctrine by the book of Ecclesiastes? The answer, hopefully you know this by now as we've been going through this, absolutely not. Solomon, you know, he's apart from God in all these statements. That's the point. But there are those that will take verses 4 through 6 and argue the point that Solomon's saying this, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No, he's, he's, the book of Ecclesiastes is inspired by God to show us what a disconnected man from God looks like. And one of the things the disconnected man from God looks like is he believes you go to annihilation. That when you die, when everybody dies, they just cease to exist. There's no more love, that emotion of love. It's like, it's like your computer, you know, you're, you're, you got a computer and there's the hardware. Um, and, and then there's software. And man, software is a little harder to kind of imagine. It's like a bunch of zeros and ones out there in a cloud somewhere. But, um, but it goes through the hardware. And when a person dies, basically, Solomon's saying, the information's gone and it goes off to oblivion. And that person ceases to exist. So the Jehovah's Witness, they believe in annihilation based on these verses right here. And they talk about that, you know. So if you're a non-Jehovah's Witness like us, they'd say, well, you're, when you die, you go to annihilation where, where you just don't, you cease to exist. It's kind of the same religious view of the atheist. But atheists aren't religious. Yes, they are. They're worshiping their own little brains and they're following a little tiny God, God called self and intellect. And one of the things that the atheist believes is, well, when you die, you go off to oblivion. One of the things I've noticed though is an amazing sense when I've been around death and I've seen a person die. And you definitely get a sense, and and unless you've stood in the room or been by the roadside in a car accident, when a person's, you know, spirit leaves their soul, not to be heebie-jeebie or anything, but there's a sense that that person is gone. The software has left the building. (laughs) it's, It's out. It's gone. The person's no longer there. That's just like a shell. And when you do funerals and open caskets and, and go to the hospitals and visit people, one of the things that actually for me brings great, great comfort is to be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. See, and that's the thing. Um, this annihilation sort of thing, uh, according to you know, Ecclesiastes, is not good, solid doctrine. Um, you got to be careful about this. So basically, 2 Corinthians 5.8 teaches that. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And um, these guys are trying to, you know, Solomon is basically saying, you know, it's better to be a dog than a dead lion. A dead lion ceases to exist, has no value. So that's his point. It's not true though. And that's the despair. By the way, I think that's one of the more depressing worldviews. If you believe that when you die, that you just cease to exist, then why not live for yourself on this life? Why not do things that are horrible, horrifying? You know, the, 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 one of the things that if you believe that God is righteous and he demands righteousness and morality is worth anything, you know, the, one of the things that I marvel is that, that an atheist, why would they try to be moral? And who makes up their moral code? If you don't have the Bible or someone other than yourself, why, why be a moral person if you just cease to exist when you die? There's some interesting philosophical questions for the person that believes you're just annihilated when you die and you go out into nothingness. The Bible speaks of nothing about that except for Solomon here. 
And that's why some of the cults like to use these verses, say, see, the Bible says, and they shall show this. And people go, wow, I guess oblivion is true. Solomon said it right here, but that's, that's a bad way of interpreting Ecclesiastes. Hope you see that. Well, he's going to go on with that. So because of annihilation, verse two, 7, pardon me, he says, go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry spirit. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white. Let thy head lack no ointment. Um, live joyfully with the wife of whom thou lovest all the days of thy life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Man, if you can picture Solomon here. What does he do? He goes and puts on his white linen garments as he's walking around the palace, and he's eating grapes and drinking wine and saying, okay, which, which wife is my favorite? Oh, yeah, bring her in. Uh, bring her in, and, and I'm just going to live in my white garments and, and beauty and cleanliness and eat my food and drink my wine, because when you die, that's it. So just live kind of a nice white food life. A lot of people have that mentality today. Man, I'm just going to live classy and be cool and drink my wine and do my thing. But that's, that's the person who lives under the sun and doesn't see that there's more to do and that eternal life has more to do with what we do in this life than anything else. Solomon's wrong about this whole thing about, you know, do whatever you want because you're going to die. So verse 10, he says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Yeah, if you want to do stuff, do it, but it doesn't matter when you die. That's what he's saying. You're going to die anyway. So if you want to be into woodcraft, do it, but it's going to mean nothing when you're dead. That, this is what Solomon's saying. Is everybody feeling peppy tonight? This guy is just such a chipper, tigger individual, isn't he? Um, <laughs> he, he and, you know, Solomon tried everything. It's, it's interesting. D.L. Moody said, better say, quote, this one thing I do than to say, these 50 things I dabble. Uh, that's a good word. This one thing I do rather than these 50 things I dabble. Solomon dabbled in everything. But I, I love as Christians, this one thing I do. And, and when, when you're a solid believer in Christ, you realize my reason for being is not for the exciting world of leathercraft. I've done funerals where people, when the, the people came up, they didn't say anything about the person's faith or their walk with the Lord. They said, man, he could carve some mean leather materials. And then the next guy got up, yeah, you should see some of his leather craft. And, and it's really kind of sad when that's all they have to say about it. Wow, he was very crafty. Um, because then you really are dead and the leather craft doesn't really do much for you necessarily in eternity. And, and those are the sad funerals. When uh, I remember one funeral we did um, uh, a few years ago and the, the guy, you know, we knew that he was probably not saved, um, and there's reason for that, but um, it was all at the funeral, you know, after I got my sermon part done, a bunch of the friends, they wanted the open sharing, always a dangerous time in these kind of funerals. But this, it was all about the guy and his drinking alcohol, how he loved to drink alcohol, and it was all, and they even played the, what's the, the, the Soho Cup song during the slideshow, you know, about it's all the drinking, the, the, the red cup, or whatever that song is, and this guy... And they were all laughing and having a great time. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in the back with Pastor Gabe and the guys, and we're brokenhearted, and I'll tell you why. 
because the guy, what he did was, is he got all drunk and his life was messed up and he was a bad dude, got into trouble, went out in the woods and shot himself in the head. That's why we were doing his funeral. But there was all his friends, boy, he could sure drink some mean alcohol. Huh, wow. And that's what his life really measured up to, to his friends. You know, that's the problem. Solomon's kind of saying, yeah, just do whatever you want. Do it as much as you want, because um, you're going to die anyway. But man, that's a bad way to live. It's not going to bring contentment. You know, I feel like contentment is the lonely hitchhiker. That we only speed by in life, only to see him in the rearview mirror. It's like the thing that we could really enjoy, we, we just say, we want more. We, we don't want that. We drive by and we try everything else only to find discontentment. That is Solomon. He's the poster child. And it's sad. Now there's good coming. Hang on, believe it or not. Um, verse 11, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to the men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happened to them all. For man knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare. So are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. He's talking about, you know, death comes to all, no matter who you are. You could be the fastest runner, you're still going to die. You could be the greatest warrior, you're still going to die. Have you thought about that in battle? You know, like, um, you know, as I've studied some recently, the last couple of years, a little bit about World War I, um, it's amazing the millions of soldiers that were killed. And, and it was a horrible meat grinder as they just threw bodies out of the trenches, basically. And before they could get their head up over, they're dead. It was just such a waste of life, World War I. But what's amazing to me is even if you were, you know, John Rambo, as soon as you stuck your head up, you were dead. Like, it didn't matter if you were a skilled fighter or, you know, a Green Beret or SEAL Team 6 person. You'd be thrown out there to this massive, you know, barrage of artillery and, and fire and chlorine gas. And, you know, you, you were just dead no matter how skilled you were. It didn't have anything to do with your skill, how fast you could run, how great of a soldier you were. And that's where Solomon's at. He's like, man, it just, it just doesn't matter. Everything's a vanity. You could be the greatest at something and still you're going to die. And that's kind of how he's looking. But this is where having that worldview that it is appointed once for a man to die, to know that the Lord has appointed a time for you to die, that gives me comfort. Lord knows when that's going to happen. It's not some arbitrary fish being caught in the net like Solomon says, or a bird in the snare. The Lord knows and he's waiting for you in heaven. You'll be ready. No big surprises to the Lord. So we can just trust that God knows what he's doing. Solomon's struggling. Verse 13, this wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Now he's going to tell a little story here. There was a little city and a few men within it. There came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. 
The words of, of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. Um, now, this is an interesting parable, and there's great debate on what it means. And also the interpretation or the translation of from the Hebrew to the English is really tricky on a couple things. Like, for example, um, there's a debate on whether this poor man that was wise was in the city. Was it that he gave them counsel of how to survive the strong king that besieged the city and they didn't listen to it? Or that he told them, but, um, but they just all ignored him? Um, or did he give it the advice, they took it, and then the, the, they all died anyway? Like there's a great debate on what this, basically this little story, but he's basically saying wisdom is better than weapons. He is saying that in this little parable. But he's also saying, but wisdom's not all that it's chalked up to be either. He's basically saying it's all bad. You can have weapons, you can have wisdom. Wisdom's better than weapons, but still, you're probably going to die. That's, that's, that's what most people agree that he's kind of trying to say here, that it's all going downhill. And that would fit, fit all the other scriptures uh, there as well that he's talking about. Wouldn't you agree? So you're all going to die. That's basically what he's saying. Yay. Now in chapter 10, we uh, looked at a good chunk of this on Sunday. We talked about how the wise man and the foolish man, number one, live their life. Verses one through three, how they live their life. You know, the fly in the ointment, stinking, falling, but is the last guy in the world to know that he stinks. Um, And you can tell whether you're a wise man or a foolish man by how you live your life, number one. You can know if you're a wise man or foolish, number two, how you look at leadership. You know, um, are you submitted to someone? Do you follow leadership? Are you too high and mighty to to be led? Um, That's the fool. Um, Or number three, you can learn how the wise man or the foolish man lead a labor life. Are they a worker or are they lazy? Looking for excuses. Oh, if I lift that rock, I'll hurt my back. If I dig that ditch, I'll fall into the ditch. And there, that's, that's what Solomon is saying. How you lead a labor life determines whether you're a wise man or a fool. And then fourthly, how you legislate your lips. Do you put a guard over your mouth and say things that are wise or foolish? And we looked at that in chapter uh, 10, verses 1 through 15. So let's finish up chapter 10. We've just got a few more verses, and then, then we'll call it a night. It says in verse 16, Woe unto thee, O land, when thy king is a child and thy princes eat in the morning. Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the son of nobles and thy princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. Um, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, there's the king that's more into pleasure than the one that's more into ruling wisely. And uh, the, the good land is, is blessed if they have a king that rules wisely. The, ba- the bad situation is when the king rules foolishly. Um, what's interesting about these, you know, couple of verses, um, if you remember the story of Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, uh, and if you remember, he, he ruled foolishly and did stupid stuff. Even though the old men were giving him wise counsel, he blew off the old men wisdom and listened to all his stupid friends they were uh, saying, man, just, uh, um, you know, tell them that your little finger is more powerful than scorpions, than my dad's little finger. And remember that whole thing? And, uh, you know, hashtag scorpions. It's like whatever these friends were telling him, it, was, it, it didn't work for Rambo. I mean, he, and he, he'd lose the kingdom. 
And this happened. Solomon sees it before it even happens. Verse 18. By much slothfulness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house droppeth through. He's probably still talking about the house of Israel, the kingdom under a king's rule. And if a king just sits around idly and doesn't do stuff or is lazy, man, the, the nation's going to fall apart or the house is going to fall, fall apart. And that kind of building of a house is sort of a theme, by the way, um, throughout the Bible. First Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. He's the farmer. And you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which has given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds thereon, but let every man take heed how he builds thereon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build up on his foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work will be made manifest or tried, for the day shall declare it and be revealed by fire. How you build your house, whether it's wood, hay, or stubble, or stones and precious gems, that's going to be determined, like at the great, uh, pardon me, the, the Bema seat judgment of Christ, the Lord's going to sort that out, how you lived your life. Here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's warning about the person who's just slothful in the building and lets their life or their country or their kingdom decay, it says in verse 18. Um, he's, he's seeing the folly and the foolishness of that. Verse 19, a feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. Some of you are like, oh, there's my life verse. <laughs> money, 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 money. Yeah, you're like, yeah, this is a good verse. It's a wrong verse, wouldn't you say? Would you guys agree that Solomon does not know what he's talking about here? Yes. And there, how do we know that? Other scripture. We compare scripture with scripture. This is Solomon speaking about that which is under the sun, disconnected from God. And he's saying, man, eat, laugh and drink and make merry, but money answers all things. Uh, we know that money does not answer all things. And this is what he thinks. Again, he's all over the place because do you remember even earlier in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, oh, and even my wealth was vanity. Do you remember that? So he's contradicting himself. This is the person who's, uh, you know, disconnected from God. He, he doesn't even know what to think, but he's wavering. That's, the, the, I think, what we're supposed to see. And finally, verse 20, Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Man, don't even whisper these things against the king because it'll eventually get around to, you know, they'll hear what you said about him. And boy, that's true. You know, the gossip or the things we say, it does get around. I think that's a true statement. Um, but, you know, First Peter chapter 2, verse 17, I'll finish with this thought. Um, it says, um, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear not, and honor the king. Isn't that an interesting thing? I wonder what would happen if, you know, during this impeachment trial, we kind of started with that. It's a big deal in our nation's, you know, history. Someday we'll look back on the impeachment of Donald Trump and the Senate hearings and stuff, and it's kind of a big deal. But while people are angry and talking and cursing and saying this and that and stuff like that, um, I love that what we're called to do is love everybody. Just love people. It just says it right there, man. And, and you know, um, what's interesting is Solomon says, don't even curse the king in your thoughts. 
because a little bird will carry those thoughts somewhere else. And I, I believe that's true. It comes out in one shape or form out of your life. But if you and I are given not to cursing, and, and by the way, I would have said this, whether we're Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Clinton or Bush or Bush or Nixon or Reagan, I would have said, we, we need to do this no matter who is in office. Honor all men, love your brothers, fear God and honor the king. I think this is what we're called to do. And so don't be the person that's fueling the fire of all the hatred and anger that's spewing out of people today. Be the person that, hey, we can, we can know what's right and wrong. And we can, we can, I think people are already debating that. But wouldn't it be great if we are the ones who say, oh, you believe differently than I do? You're, you're a person who believes the exact opposite politically than I do? Hey, guess what? I still love you. And we can be friends and we can talk about stuff and, and be kind to each other. That's the thing that's not happening today. If you go and tell people what your political views are, man, you might have people today in Portland, they might throw a concrete milkshake in your face um, like they did that one guy in downtown Portland. Or they might scream at you insanely, uh, you know, depending on what your belief system holds. But you and I are called to love one another, even our enemies, do good to them that persecute you, um, you know, despitefully use you. We're supposed to be loving. So don't fall into the trap as they hate you, you're not supposed to go hate them back. You and I are to, it says here, honor all men, love the brother, fear God, and honor the king. May the Lord give us wisdom in these divisive days. In Jesus' name. Lord, we are thankful that we can put our trust in you and we don't hope only in this life. But Lord, you, you tell us in your word so much opposite of Solomon's worldview. Solomon just had so many things that he was trying to figure out and in his sinful, uh, desperate situation, he found no hope and total depression. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't find ourselves there. Help our brains not to so easily go to those places of discouragement like Solomon, but Lord, show us how to put our hope and our trust in you. Lord, all these things that are so contrary that we do have eternal life, that are the hope of heaven, that you're preparing a place for us, that when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that heaven's going to be a place where there's a wiping away of all the tears and no more sorrow or pain. Lord, there's so much that we have to look forward to. And I pray that we would, we would look at this life through that lens, that it's not about here or now. Lord, as our nation is so divided, I, I pray that, that, Lord, you would just do a healing work on this country. We don't know what the future holds, but you know all things. You know what's going to happen in America, in the United States. So we put our trust in you. But we do lift up our leadership, our president. We pray that you would guide them in truth, that they would you know, do their office, Lord, um, and, and be somehow thinking of how they can please and serve you, Lord, whether it's Trump or anybody else who takes that office. You raise men up. You put men down. Um, we see how in the word, Lord, you use Samson, who was a crazy, murderous, sinful dude, but you used him. Jephthah, nobody liked Jephthah, but Lord, you chose him and used him as a judge of Israel. We think of David who sinned in adultery and murder and yet still was the king of Israel that you use flawed, messed up people. 
Um, and, and we see a nation that's flawed and we see senators that are flawed and people that are angry. And Lord, we just sense that there's a stirring. We pray that your will would be worked out through these days. Lord, we put our trust in you and not in men. So as we go our way tonight, I pray that we would um, go the opposite direction of Solomon, Lord, that we'd put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.